We're going to look at first, um, no we're not, I thought we were still in Timothy, we're in Acts, Acts chapter 1. I usually send out my church emails weekly schedule at the beginning of the week, so whatever it says the sermon is going to be at the beginning of the week isn't really what it's going to be, because once I get into the sermon text, it, it just, uh, I find more. So whatever I sent you probably wasn't that. And we're looking at uh, Acts 1, as I said. I originally was going to take 12 to 26 and treat a certain theme. But I decided to look at 12 through 14 because this is a particular subject that I think is foundational upon which the rest of the book is um, is built, but uh, first uh, Acts one, verse twelve, the holy word of our holy God. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. When they had entered the city, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. That is Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, Simon the zealot, Judas the son of James. These all, with one mind, were continually devoting themselves to prayer, along with the women, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. Amen. Let's pray. Almighty God, you have told us it's good and pleasant for brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers in Christ to dwell together in peace and unity and love, kindness. We pray, Holy Spirit, you who are represented in the scripture as a dove, that we upon you whom you've come and in whom you dwell that today we would have a increasingly a lamb-like and a dove-like spirit lord that we might bring glory and honor to the father the son and the holy spirit teach us what it is to be a christian and to be a member of the body of christ even the church we pray this in christ's name amen so originally my desire was to look at this passage um, under the the subject of uh, the the prayer meeting of the church. That's what's going on here. So the way that I study scripture is I look at something, I'm looking for the main three theme, some of the sub-themes, and then I kind of, I, I unpack it. And then my practice is, is to explain, apply. It's fairly... It's fairly normative, Martin Lloyd-Jones. I'm not, I'm not Martin Lloyd-Jones, but that was his, his method. Explain, apply. That's my method. And so in, in the process of looking at this passage as a prayer meeting of the church, I thought it would be helpful, if not even necessary, if we're talking about the activities of the church to, pa- to perhaps begin with. And if we can get there in the body of the sermon, great. If not, maybe we can bring more in next week if there's a next week. Uh, but to talk about the more fund- foundational truth, which is the church. So if you have a, an entity that's praying, we want to see what that entity is, the church. And though the, the word church is not me- mentioned here, but that's exactly what it is. You have a gathering of the apostles and the brothers and the sisters in Jesus Christ. Later in verse 15, there's 120 people gathered here. So this is a church gathering. So yes, we want to look at the prayers of the church, and we should be a praying people like our Christ was a praying Christ. Even now, he sits at the right hand of the Father. What's he doing? He's praying. He's making intercession for his people. So we do want to talk about um, the, 
the practices of the church. They're gathered together as one person in peace and love and unity, all those wonderful things. They're praying for the promise of the Holy Spirit that Christ says you're going to receive to advance the gospel, to advance the kingdom. Yes. So hopefully we'll talk about that. But I want to back up and look at the more general truth of what's going on here. We're looking at we're looking at the gathering of the church. This is the New Testament church. I maintain in under various terms and so on, being a Reformed Christian, I see the Old Testament believers as the Old Testament church. And as a New Testament believer, the New Testament church. And I realized when I was a dispensationalist, I saw Israel as Israel, and the church is the church, and the twain shall never meet, and so on. There's a famous woman preacher. She has a book, The Two Brides of Christ or something. It's wrong. Don't buy the book. The Bible says, the Holy Spirit says in Acts chapter 7, he calls the people of Israel in, uh, in, in the wilderness uh, ecclesia. He calls them the church. So, but when we're looking at the church here, we're looking at um, Christ has died, he has risen, he has ascended, and now the beginning of the New Testament church. And I think it's more helpful, it's helpful for us to just de- deal with this very basic, it's going to be a basic sermon. We're going to look at the entity of the church, the, the physical locality of the church, it's in Jerusalem. They meet in an upper room. They're significant. Then we're going to see the activities of the church. They're living peaceably one with another. Shocking. And then they're praying. <laughs> shocking, shocking. So we'll look at those things. But let's first start with what we mean by the word church. Our English word for church comes from either an old Germanic or an old English word. And some of you will know this if you're super Scottish and Reformed, it goes by the name of Kirk. And there are some people like in our corner of the Reformed Church, we're English, Scottish, Reformed, corner of the Reformed Church. There are some guys that are are truly TR. They're truly Reformed. And they'll say, I'm going to go to the Kirk. (laughs) Well, you want to sound Scottish, I get it. Kirk comes from the Greek word kurios. And kurios means Lord, of the Lord. So when we're talking about the church, the nature of the church, what it is, we are those people of the Lord, the people of the Lord. And we learn something, it's going to seem basic, uh, maybe even, maybe a little bit silly. The church is not, when we speak of the church being those of the Lord, the church is not the building. The church is a collection of people. I know it seems simple. It seems very, very simple. This sermon will be simple. We have the gathering of 120 people. Those people constitute the essence of what the church is. Those people are of the Lord. Yes, there is a church building, but the church building is not the church. If the church building were destroyed, God forbid, but if it was destroyed in a war, in in a hurricane, and we were all alive on a Sunday, and we gathered out in that football field out there, that would be the gathering of the church. So it's the people of the Lord who constitute the church. Now, as I say that, and it's not fundamentally the building, even as silly as that may sound, and all of us would say, of course that's true. I want you to think about this. The people here, they are the people of the Lord, and they are concerned about the people of the Lord. If you have been a Christian more than a week, 
and you come into a church building among a gathering of people, you know that sometimes as Christian people, we forget about the people aspect of the church and we get all absorbed with the physical aspect of the church building. What color is the carpet going to be? Are we going to have chairs or pews? Are we going to have kneelers? What about the, the trappings of the building? And we think, well, that, that's where it's at. I would argue that's completely contrary to Kirk, people of the Lord. So Jesus says, I'm going to build my Kirk. He's talking about people. He's not talking about the building per se. And you say, well, that's silly. No Christian gets so uh, absorbed with the building, they forget about the people. Oh, yes, they do. Oh, yes, they do. I've been here 20 years. In the first year, you see how the wood is, the, the stain here? So in the cry room back there where the people are rocking their babies, we decided to paint the, paint the stain a, a paint color. We lost a family over that. A family said, my cousin Bobby painted that the stain color, and the devil is in this church, and if you paint that baseboard in crown molding, we're leaving. Beloved, Jesus is in the saving people business. He's not in the business of saving buildings. And I'm, I'm not picking on that. I'm not picking on it. But when we're coming to like, what is this business of, of church? And what is this being together of one spirit and praying and asking God to pour out his Holy Spirit? Church is people. And sometimes as Christians, we forget the people business. I got to do, I got to do, I got to do. We have been created by God to be in relationship there is a love relationship between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Read John chapter 17. Fundamentally, the church is the people of the Lord. And when we say of the Lord, that Greek kurios, kirk, of the Lord, and who do we mean? Lord who? You know, if you say we're Christians, it's the Lord Jesus. Yeah, that's true. Uh, but there are a lot of other so-called gods and so-called messiahs and people say the Lord this and the Lord that the Lord this the Lord that oh no the, the, the church is not the people of the Lord this or that when we say the church is the body or the collection or the group or the gathering of the people of the Lord we mean of the Lord Jesus Jesus is our Lord Jesus is God come in the flesh doubting Thomas he said, my Lord and my what? God. I have a Unitarian in my family I love very much. And they said, I love Jesus Christ, but I don't worship him as God. I don't serve him as my Lord and my master. That's wrong, beloved. That's wrong. You're not a Christian. You're not a true member of Christ's true body, the church. The church is a collection of people that say, Jesus is my Lord. He's my God. He's my life. He's my all. To live is Christ and to die is gain. So the people that are gathered are Christ's people. They belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. And there's, there's another word, a, a singular word for belonging to the Lord, for bending the knee. What, what is it, Philippians 2? Philippians 2, 1 through 11. Those who bend the knee and confess what? There are two kind of folk. There are two kind of folk. Those who bend the knee here willingly saying, Jesus is my Lord. He's my Savior. He is my teacher. Not only does he 
reconcile me and bring me back into union and communion with God the Father. He teaches me how to live a glorifying life that I might enjoy him forever and ever. There are those people, and then there are those people who say, Jesus is not my Lord. So we could say it like this. We could divide all of humanity into two classes of people. And I'm going to apply it to the concept of church. There are those people who say, Jesus is my only hope in life and death. He's purchased me with his precious blood. He's my only hope. He he is it. He's my Savior, the second person of the Godhead. He has redeemed me. There are those people, and they're on the narrow road. And then there's everybody else. You're either in Jesus, you're either a disciple of Jesus, or you're not. One or two. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7, there's a big old easy squeezy road. All you have to do is be born, born in Adam, and you're on it. And everybody's going like this. And where is it going to lead you? Down. And then there's a narrow road. And who are those folks? It goes right through the cross. And those are the people that say, I am of the Lord. I am of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 10, there are those people that confess him. When we are called upon to confess or profess Jesus, we say, Jesus is my Savior. He's my Lord. And it shows that we belong to him. And then we are, when we are gathered together, we are the people of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we could say there are two people, those who profess Jesus and those who do not. And we could also say like this regarding the church. There are those people that are in the church and there are those people that are out of the church. And here I'm not talking about any particular denomination of church. I'm just using church as those who profess uh, the true gospel of the cross, as one theologian calls it from 1 Corinthians chapter. 2 verse 2 as Paul says the only thing I want to do is preach the cross but there is something when we we say the church is the gathering together of those who confess or profess Jesus as the Lord the church is fundamentally or primarily I'm not going to say exclusively but primarily or fundamentally a religious entity we are gathered together we are called out of sin gathered together as people that profess faith for a religious purpose here for religious uh, worship, for for religious moral edification. We we are a religious entity. That's what the church is. Why do I say that this, I would argue that this is something that the church has lost its way in. One of the ways that you're taught to grow a big church is to, to incorporate those things which are decidedly not religious. So you can have band practice, you can have Christian yoga, if there is such, it's like saying Christian Hinduism. It's very, very silly. But you can go to churches and they say, we have Christian yoga, Christ, Hindu, Christian yoga here. And then you have coffee shops, weightlifting class, all of those things. Will that grow the church? Will it grow the amount of people in a building? Yeah. It will not grow the the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. It will not, it cannot grow those who say, Jesus has died for my sins and risen for my justification. Jesus is my Lord and my Savior. It will not grow that. You'll have a lot of people that want to lift weights and do kung fu and drink coffee. You will not grow the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And the way that the church of the Lord Jesus Christ grows is through the preaching of the word, law, gospel, the wages of sin and death, the free offer of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Come, come, come. Believe, believe, believe. So the church is decidedly a religious entity. I believe, and am I saying that the Christians can't gather who go to a particular church and say, hey, do you all want to go to the lake? Do you you all want to go pitch horseshoes? No, we're not saying that. But we're saying that the function of the corporate body of believers is decidedly religious. It's not decidedly cultural. It's not decidedly political. It's not decidedly nutritional or financial. We're not here to tell you how to balance your checkbook. We're here to glorify the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, and worship Him in spirit and truth. And I would argue, beloved, the church has has lost its way. And the only church I'm familiar with is the American church. So we are the collection of the people that belong to Jesus, and we're here to bring Him glory. Now, the second idea uh, that's um, taught to us by the word church, and I'm going to read, most of you all are familiar with this. When Jesus says, I will build my church. Where's that come from? Do you remember in your Bibles? Let's do sword drills. Sword drills right now. Matthew chapter what? 16. Okay, you got it right. I'm going to read that to us. This is, the, this is a word that Jesus uses for church. This is what Jesus is built, busy building. This is what these 120 folks are gathered here. They, are, they constitute this uh, early New Testament church. Matthew 16. If, you, if any of you guys are military guys or have been military guys... Jesus is the commander. He's the Lord of hosts. He sends out his preachers. And then when he comes back, he does a debriefing. And the debriefing is, he says, now how did it go? I sent you out on the mission. Now how did it go? This this is a debriefing. Matthew 16, verse 13. Now when Jesus came into the, the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, here, he went, he told them, go out and preach me. Christ crucified. Jesus is the answer. Go out and preach that. Now he wants to say, so what did the guy say to you when you said that? Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, other Elijah, still others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? And that's a you all. And when he says, who do you, it's you plural, and then Peter is going to, he will singularly answer it, but I would argue as a representative I understand you're saying you're given the Protestant answer, not the Catholic answer. Yes, because I'm a Protestant minister. But he asked first you all. Who do you all say that I am? Simon Peter answers as a representative. He says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, Simon the son of Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. People are converted by the sovereign grace of a sovereign God. I also say to you that you are Peter, and I think upon the the rock of his confession, not his person, because later he's going to be told, get behind me, Satan. He says, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades or hell will not overpower it. The word that Jesus uses there for church is a compound Greek word. It's ekklesia. Ek is out of, and kaleo is to call. Remember, we are the people of the Lord, of the Lord Jesus, the gathering together of those kind of folk. Now, also another fundamental truth about the church, who and what we are. We are the people that have been called out of something. 
Beloved, what have we been called out of or away from? The world? What else? Sin. Sin. Jesus Christ is the good news. Jesus Christ is the good news that he saves what kind of people? Sinners. And what is the wage of sin? Death. The good news answers the bad news. We have been called away from the wrath of God. We have been called away from the broke, the breach of God's, um, God's law. Christ satisfies it for us. We've been called away from the dominion and the slavery to sin and to Satan, sometimes manifested by vile affections. And we have been called away from that. We've been called away from belonging to the world. We're in the world, but we're not worldlings. So we've been called out of all of these deleterious things. So we are the called out ones. And think of that. Called out from this, called out from that, called out from this. There's another singular word that denotes those things. We are God's holy people. We're consecrated. Called out of sin. And we are called to God in Christ. To belong to him. I want you to think about that. That's the church. We are the people that Jesus Christ has saved from our sins to live unto him. I quoted to a brother this week, Hebrews 12, 14. Without what? No one will see the Lord. Holiness. Holiness. We are... To be an unholy Christian is oxymoron. To be a Christian that says, Jesus has saved me from my sin to enjoy my sin is, a, is, a, is blasphemy. It's not true. As the people of God, as the church gathered together, we are the ones that have been saved from the dominion of sin and the devil. Saved from, but saved for. And we should manifest that. When people, of course, we stumble and bumble. There's a question in our catechism. Is it possible for any mere man to keep the law of God? No mere man. No mere man can keep the law of God in thought, word, and deed. But every day doth break it in thought, word, and deed. But nevertheless, when the unbeliever looks at the, the gathering together of God's people, what, what should they be looking at? Husbands that love their wives and wives that love and respect their husbands. Kiddos that respect their folks and folks that love their kids. We should be the best citizens. We should be holy, peaceable, gentle, kind. Because we've been pull, pulled out of those. We're not lions and tigers and, and bears, oh my. We're sheep and we're lambs. We're God's holy people. And when people look at the church, they shouldn't be able to say, look at you all. You're all just a bunch of baptized worldlings. Oh, no, we're not. Oh, no, we're not. We sing of the holiness of God. We love God. We love people. And that's what it means. That's what the church is. We are those people that have been called out of our sin. And what calls us out of our sin? The gospel calls us out of our sin. Jesus says, come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden. And I will what? I will give you rest. I'll give you rest for your soul. So the gospel call goes out. The Holy Spirit makes it effectual. He takes out our heart of stone. He gives us a heart of flesh. He gives us faith to believe. And we're joined. So the church is the people of the Lord. But we've been called out of the world. We've been called out of sin. There are some people who say, well, oh, so you're going to sit on your commune. And you're going to just be there like little two people in the OPC in your commune. And you're not going to interact with the world. 
Well, that's silly. That's ridiculous. I've never taught this in my entire life. We're in Pensacola. I love Pensacola. I want to die in Pensacola. I'm not on my commune. We are in the world, but we're not what? We're not of the world, and we're salt and light. How are the unbelievers going to hear of the gospel unless it's believers that give them? So I'm against communes. I think they're not biblical. So the rejoinder that, well, if y'all are saved out of the world, that you're going to have no effect on the world. I would argue the exact opposite is true. The more like Christ we become, the, the more radically different than the world that we, we, we become, the more useful to the world that we are. If, the, if, if a worldling, an unbeliever comes and says, wow, the music is like the, the, the dance hall and the people act like the dance hall people, there's no difference. Guess what, beloved? You ever listen to Christian rock music? It stinks. Listen to the Almond Brothers or Jimi Hendrix. It's way better. If, if we want to be half a worldling, the world beats us at being worldlings. We want to offer something radically different. We are the holy people of God. And the worldling cannot get that outside of the church. And when they come into their church and they see the world, they conclude one thing. Y'all are just like us. Y'all are just like us. We are the holy called out ones. And then there's another word that's kind of the counterpart of the called out ones. And it's a transliteration from... Transliteration means you take from one language and then just phonetically you say it in your own language. So the transliteration of the Hebrew word synagogue into Greek is synagogue. And it's the counterpart to the called out ones. James says this. You remember in the book of James, chapter 2, the poor Christians are coming into the gathering of God's people for worship. And one of the ushers does what? So what do you do for a job? I'm a carpet cleaner. Okay, you sit in the back. What do you do for a job? I'm a doctor. Okay, you get up front. (laughs) (laughs) Don't they do that? And the gathering together of the church there is called synagogue. And it means literally the gathered together. So we have been called out of sin. We have been called to Jesus. And we are gathered under one head. And we're gathered together as the body of Jesus. So it's the opposite of the called out. It's the gathered together or the counterpart. We are the synagogue of God. We are the assembly of God. In the Old Testament Hebrew, it would be the assembly, the assembly, the assembly. The New Testament says in uh, James chapter 2, we are the assembly. The New Testament church is the Israel of God. We are the people of God. We are the synagogue of God. We are gathered together. And just as an aside, I'm not feeling very feisty this morning, but the people gather together. The Christian that is not providentially hindered. If you are providentially hindered, this doesn't apply to you. The thief wasn't baptized because he was on a cross. The thief didn't go to church the next Lord's Day because he was on a cross. If you are in a hospital bed and you can't go to church on the Lord's Day, it's because you're in a hospital bed. But we learn something very fundamental. When you are joined to the Jesus Christ, who else or what else are you joined to? Gather together to other believers. Have you ever had this experience you have your home church fellowship and you go somewhere else. I don't know, Sheboygan, I don't know. You go somewhere else to a decidedly different church if you're brave enough. And you walk in and people go, yeah, we love Jesus here. What happens to you? Oh, these are my people. Oh, there's my mother in the faith and there's my brother in the faith and my sister in the faith. Gather together. The heart of the person joined to Jesus, the next thing they're looking for, other people that love Jesus. You don't have to teach it. 
If you were raised in the church, perhaps it wasn't as marked to you, but I wasn't raised in a Protestant church. I became born again, and the next thing I went looking for is other born-again Christians. Why? Because I'm a born-again Christian. You didn't have to teach me. It happens. We're joined together spiritually, mystically. And, and notice that what I've said, that where the, the people of the Lord, the people called out of sin, the people gathered to Jesus, gathered to one another. Notice what I have not said. The Presbyterian church is the church. The OPC is the super church of the church. I love our denomination. I am a Reformed Christian. If you cut me, I bleed Calvinism. I promise. But I'm going to say something, beloved. The people of Jesus, the people called out of sin, the people called to Jesus, those are your people. Those are the people that belong to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Read our confession, chapter 25, 1 and 2. I'm a Presbyterian. If you have a baby and you're a Presbyterian, I cannot wait to sprinkle or pour that. I'm going I'm to baptize my little grandson when Duncan comes out of that womb. I'm going to baptize that little guy. And I'm going to love it. And if you recoil and you're a Baptist who loves Jesus and say, how dare you? You've got to wait till they're 7 to 12. And then when they throw the stick in the fire at the camp, then you can dunk them. If you're a Baptist who loves Jesus and a Presbyterian who loves Jesus, you're a member of the same church. And I'm going to say something. And we should really believe that. And we should really feel that. And we should speak that and act that. Have you ever been unchristianized? Do you know what I mean, unchristianized? Where do you all go to church? I had a group of kids come from the PCC seminary many years ago. They're Baptists, dispensational. They hate Calvinists. I don't think that's too strong of a word. They hate Calvinists. They hate Calvinism. They think it's not Christian. And anybody that pours or sprinkles a baby, they don't think you're a Christian. So these young guys came into my office and they wanted the use of the church to start their own church and so I said well tell me your only hope in life and death and they gave me the gospel I said well you're my brothers in Jesus and they looked at me you're a Calvinist I said guilty as charged you baptize babies of believers I said guilty guilty as charged and they looked at me and treated me like an unbeliever and I said can I tell you something I think you're my brothers in the Lord and we differ on these tertiary and secondary things and you think I'm an unbeliever. And I love Christ. And he pays for all of my sins by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. And it hurts my feelings that you unchristianized me. Oh, beloved, sometimes we get our feelings hurt and then we turn around and do what? I'm going to, I'm fixing to unchristianize you. Is a poor witness. I would argue if the bombs were falling on this country rather than Ukraine, you know how much we would really, 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 really care? Y'all go to the OPC? You wouldn't care. Oh, Jesus. Remember? People of Jesus. People called out of their sin. People that only hope in Jesus by the power of his blood, by the gospel. People that are gathered together as the people of God. Oh, brother. Oh, sister. Oh, Mother, oh, Father, oh, Jesus. I'm not disparaging the secondary and tertiary things. 
uh, uh, that we hold doctrinally. I hold them, and I hold they're true. But if you love Christ and you believe in his gospel, then you're my brother and sister, and you ought to treat people like they're your brothers and sisters. Sometimes we think we're really living for Jesus when all we're doing is beating up another Christian. Why don't you go tell an unbeliever about Jesus and use your energy if you're pretty feisty. So we have a gathering of men and women, 120 people we're told in in, in verse uh, 15. I would argue it's men, women, and their children. And this is, I don't think I'm going to show my Presbyterian cards. I'm going to show my, my Baptist cards. The church consists of all those who profess true religion. They profess the gospel and their children. I came out of Catholicism. I was a dispensational Baptist. So I denied that in my theology, but I did it in my practice. Every Baptist worth their, worth their salt says, nope, there are no baby members, only when you're 7 to 12. There are no baby members of the church, just adult professors. Oh, you don't believe that. You do not believe that. When your little two-year-old little bitsy is sitting on your lap and you're bopping around, what are you going to do on the Lord's Day? Buttercup, we're going where? Buttercup, we're going to worship Jesus. Let's bow your head. Pray to Jesus. Well, you're not treating him like Mahatma Gandhi. You're not waiting for his 7 to 12 to confess faith. You're treating that little kid like what? Like a Christian. So your theology says one thing. I know because I did it. But your practice says on, on what? Oh, this little one has been devoted to me by Jehovah, and I'm going to devote him back to Jehovah. Oh, little one. That's what happens. And, and when we are gathered together, we don't, like I've been in churches. I was in Calvary Chapel. If you're 12 and under, guess what happens to you when they start preaching? They boot your kids. Your little kid sitting next to you is booted. And he goes where? To do kung fu with the other kids. What do you think about that? You are gathered to worship the Lord with your husband, your wife, and your kiddos. And they say, how old is that kid? Can we check his ID? He's 11. He's got to go. Where's he going to go? To the goofball teaching the goofball stuff? Wait a minute. Read the Bible. And they were gathered. Who was gathered before to hear the law read? The men, the women, the fathers, the mothers, the little kids, the big ones, the small ones, everyone. Beloved, the, the church is the household of God. This isn't an argument for baptism. You should baptize your little babies if you're a believer, but that's another thing. This is not an argument for that. The church is the household of God. We are the family of God. And guess what families have? Babies, kids. Where are the kiddos going to learn to pray? And where are they going to learn to worship corporately? Where will they do that? In church, among the gathering of the believers. And what are, you, what are we telling our kids when we boot them? When the preaching of the word goes on, you're gone. What are we telling them? They're second-class citizens? No. What we have here is the gathering of of the people that belong to Jesus. I'm not saying that you must, they're becoming born again because they're born to us. No, of course not. I'm not saying parents can give faith. No, of course not. That's the Holy Spirit's business. But they, they are members of the visible church because they've been born to believers. And we're to bring them into the corporate worship of God and to train them up in the Lord. This is training ground. This is training ground. And they're all gathered together as the children of God. Oh, I've run out of... I could preach three more sermons, but I don't want to preach three more sermons. I want to say... um, How... What do I want to say? 
Notice where the people of God meet. We're told that they're gathered together in Jerusalem. The very first church, visible New Testament church, was the church in Jerusalem. And it's highly significant. And Jerusalem is a compound word. Um, Salem means peace. Uh, Jeru means city. We are the city of, of peace. And it's not this, the earthly city is the city of peace. Read uh, Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4 calls the earthly city Syria the slave. Uh, excuse me, Arabia the slave. And then the book of uh, Revelation calls the earthly Jerusalem um, Sodom and Egypt. It is significant that the, the, the first New Testament church is founded in Jerusalem. When Christ comes back, when Christ comes back, is it Revelation 21, what comes down out of heaven prepared as a bride for Christ? The new Jerusalem. The perfected bride. It's that people idea. It's not the, it's not the dirt city, rock city. It's the people idea. Not only are we the holy people, we are the city of peace. We are those holy people, made peaceable creatures. Read the Beatitudes. And I, I, again, just by way of application, if the perfected church coming out of glory is foreshadowed here, being built up as this new Jerusalem, this uh, uh, Israel of God, what kind of people should Christians be? What should the Christian church present to the world? And I know you're going to think, well, Pastor John, you're just a pacifist weenie. I'm not a pacifist. There is just cause for just war and self-defense. I'm not a pacifist. But if we are members of the city of peace, what kind of people should Christians be? I show you, you're totally, we're going to do, we're going to take care of you, dot, 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 dot. The Apostle Paul, the Apostle Peter says, you bite and devour one another. But we're not that. When people look at the church and what we bring to our societies, we should be that leavening, we, we should, like salt and light. We should exude peace. We should be peacemakers and peace givers and peace extenders. The other thing I wanted to say is they, they met in the upper room and this is significant, and it gets back to the building idea. All of us are, we have flesh, and all of us has, have desires, and it, the flesh in the world is like a magnet to us. They met in an upper, upper room. Jesus' last Passover and first supper was in an upper room. The early church did not worship in a dedicated church building. Can I say that again? The early church did not worship in a dedicated church building. In the church of my youth, they taught a thing called ecclesiastical architecture. Now, every Presbyterian really wants to be an Anglican because they like the architecture and they really want to be called fancy schmancy. That's their, they dream that at night. They do. When we say, oh, I, I can't believe he has the fancy everything. I don't want the fancy. No, they want the fancy. But it's from the flesh. It is from the flesh. The early church met in a common living area up above some shops. They didn't have a dedicated church building. Am I saying you can't have a dedicated church building? No, read our confession. Chapter 1, Article 6. 
through graced wisdom, is it better to own or rent? Just graced wisdom. It's way better to own. Why? Because then they don't, can't hang, you, hang it over your head and jack your rent up every five seconds. So if God providentially allows you to have a building that you can meet, great. If God providentially gives you the funds so you can have a building to meet, great. But they didn't in the beginning. There is no New Testament scripture that shows anything about any church building architecture, any trappings at all, anything. And people write books on this stuff, and even some Protestant guys write books on this stuff. Beloved, what's one of the principles of the Protestant Reformation? Solo what? Scriptura. But it's not in the Bible. Oh, oh, it's not in the Bible, but I'm going to go back to the Old Testament. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. That's the umbilical cord. That fell off. Read Hebrews. We're not Old Testament Israel. We're the New Testament Israel. We worship in spirit and in truth. The, the first New Testament church wor- worshiped in a meeting hall. Beloved, sometimes we get so, and we think like this, and they're meeting in a meeting hall for a reason. The reason these people are meeting in a me- meeting hall is because they get kicked out of what entity? The synagogue. They were cast out. Most of the church here are Jews. And they got the boot from the synagogue for believing in Jesus. When, pe- when Christians get ex- excommunicated, if people do it, in some Reformed churches still do it, but when people get excommunicated, what happens to them in the Christian context? What happens? They get booted from Bob's Presbyterian. What do they do? They trot down to Pete's Presbyterian. When you get kicked out of the synagogue, where do you go? They're the only game in town. And when you get booted out of the synagogue, you didn't have kids to, to, you didn't have other people to marry your kids. You lost your job. You lost your position. You lost your honor. You're broke. They don't have a dedicated church building because they're poor. Most of the early Christians that are gathered together are poor as church mice. And I want, I, I want you to think of something. Most times we think like this as Christians. Well, if the church would be richer, if we, could, if we could convert the academy, even better than the academy, if we could convert politicians, if we could get a politician and convert the politician and the church had more money or more political influence or more physical power, then the church would be an incredible influence on society for good. Can I tell you something, beloved? It's the exact opposite. Exact. The exact opposite. Here are these people, poor as church mice. And what are they going to be filled with? The Holy Spirit. The church that receives a rebuke, Laodicea, in the book of Revelation. They're walking around. They're in high cotton. They have plenty of money. They have all this other stuff. And what does Jesus say? You're lukewarm and you're useless. And the church that doesn't receive a rebuke is what church? Smyrna. And what do we know about Smyrna? You're poor as a church mouse. And I'm happy with you. How many people, American Christians, have gone, say, on a short-term mission trip and you go to someplace like Haiti and you come back and you say, well, that was the sweetest worship with brothers and sisters Oh, it was glorious. It was like a little slice of heaven. And you say to them, but they don't, they don't even have a building. 
They don't even have pews. They sit on sticks. Like, oh, beloved, when we have nothing of the world's goods, where, where are our hearts and our minds directed to? Towards our everything. Towards Christ. When Christians fight about stuff, church buildings, all this stuff, all it shows is that their heart is not absorbed with Christ. The Holy Spirit dwells in people. It's not the stuff. Jesus came to save people, not stuff. What will happen to the stuff when Christ comes back? It's going to burn. He came to seek and to save lost people. Beloved, the church, our men, women, boys, and girls, called out of their sins, called to Jesus, and we're gathered together as a spiritual family. And we glorify God. We glorify God when we live like mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters in Christ. And I would argue, you want to change society? Start treating other Christians like a mother and a father and a sister and brother in Christ. Amen? Amen. May God be pleased with the preaching of his word.